So after, mm, what has it been about how many hours now? <laughs> 24, 24, about over 48 hours. <laughs> I have to say, I just thought I send this to one of the groups. I this morning, um, when when I was Chris was in the group and he was talking about about his experience. He said, "But it's only been a day," and it was like a day. <laughs> I mean, there's only been one day <laughs> because for me, it's already felt like so much is happening here and uh, and then like a whole another set of hours went by since you know 1130 this morning and it it everything just feels so rich and when when we're actually staying present for our experience there's a lot going on I mean it's not that there's a lot going on even when we're not as attentive but it's a whole different level of um, we might say intensity, you know, and it feels as if there is a certain uh, cooking that is starting to happen. I can feel it. I feel the the cooking beginning. And this morning we began to explore this very interesting teaching of the Buddha called the Vedana. This, which is just a feeling tone of experience just in its bare actuality of either pleasant, unpleasant, or somewhere in between, which is sometimes called neutral, but it's actually neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And, and you might wonder why it would be necessary to make that distinction. But when you really look at your experience when it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, it's not neutral. <laughs> It's just not pleasant or unpleasant, <laughs> but it's very, there's often a very rich, very alive experience that you just can't say falls into one category or the other. So I don't really like to use the word neutral because it just has a certain association that doesn't sometimes match our experience very well. So I've always been very interested that the Buddha made this teaching the second foundation of mindfulness, of all the things that we can bring our attention to. He starts with the body, attention to the body, using the body as a frame of reference for where to direct the mindfulness. And then the second place is the Vedana, is the feeling tone of experience. And when, as I spoke this morning, all of the Buddha's teachings arise out of that understanding around the very bare tone of experience, unpleasant, pleasant, or somewhere in between. Because when we leave experience alone, without getting involved in our grasping and manipulating and wanting and desire and attachment to our preferences and likes and dislikes and all of that, then experience is just what it is. It just has a bare quality of sensation. Is it pleasant, unpleasant, or somewhere in between? And we can see as we start to explore our experience, if we have some kind of baseline, sort of baseline for the 
the exper experience, conditioned experience without any reactivity, then it gives us the opportunity to look and see, well, it doesn't feel just like bare experience. <laughs> There's a whole lot more going on. And it can feel, we, we, can, we can see how we get involved in all of our preferences and our attachment to our preferences of how we want experience to be. How I want my experience to be so that I like it. So I like my experience. And that can get far-reaching. We see that's not only here. We, the meditation is just sort of a, a microcosm for our entire life. Maybe you've seen that by now. You know, it's just that we play that out. We act that out in every possible way, grasping and rejecting, grasping and rejecting, manipulating, controlling, wanting, liking, disliking. And the whole of our experience can be based on that. And we miss this underlying kind of peacefulness or where actually everything is just what it is in its natural order, in its natural display, in its, in its ap appearance and formation, just the way it is, sights and sounds and tastes and smells and our mental activity, thoughts and images and ideas and just arising and passing, appearing and disappearing. And then there is this, what we call this self or ego self or the sense of I, me, you know, who gets in there and starts to meddle with experience, starts to tinker, tinker with things. We can't leave things alone. That's, the, that's where our suffering arises. That's where dukkha, this sense of unsatisfactoriness, this unsatisfactory nature of our existence, of our reality. Because it's so hard to just let things be. Let things be. It may even sound, as I speak about it, it may even sound unbelievable that that's even possible. <laughs> like, was she actually saying that we can... That's an experience that's possible for any kind of sustained period of time. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe for a few minutes or maybe even an hour. You know, maybe I've even had that experience for a few hours. You know, walking outside, being in nature, you know, where things seem very peaceful, the wind is blowing, the grass is is swaying, the birds are flying, and we feel peaceful inside, and there's nothing troubling us. We're not in any kind of reactivity. We're not in, we don't need anything to be different. We've all had those experiences when the mind, we say the mind is at rest, the mind is at peace, and we're not in conflict with reality. But to have that be like for more than a few hours or a couple of days, oh, come on, you know, like a week, <laughs> impossible. You know, that's what we can we imagine from this location of the ego or the self, you know, that isn't, doesn't, doesn't, can't really just let go into the conditionality and let things play and be as they are.
so when we, that's the mind of the Buddha. That's the mind of the Buddha, the mind that is completely at peace, deep peace, deep equanimity. And we touch that, we taste that at different times, like I said, different times when we're not in any kind of a struggle. We're not in conflict, or as somebody said, I'm not arguing with reality, you know, where we can just like open to it and let it be. So the Buddha, because there is this baseline, because there is something possible within our own consciousness, with our own being, that is equanimous, that is at peace, that is still, that is not in conflict, because that is possible, then the practice or the path that we are engaged in is looking at what creates the problem. (laughs) Where's the problem? We were talking about this in one of the groups today. You know, what is it that's actually bringing about the problem? Why is there a problem? Why are we suffering? Maybe sometimes we might say, well, I'm not really suffering. You know, a lot of people don't, they can't relate to that word because it's not, it's too strong. It's, it doesn't match their experience. But say discontent or dissatisfied, yeah, <laughs> not actually that satisfied. I'm not suffering, but, you know. So this is what the Buddha, the Buddha, the Buddha's teachings, the Buddha's practices, um, the, all that we're engaged in is looking at where is the problem so that we can identify that, work with that, and put the problem down <laughs> so we don't have to carry it. That's what's meant by freedom. Freedom or liberation, being liberated from the problem of life or the, the dukkha being liberated from the dukkha. It's called the end of dukkha, the third noble truth, freedom, liberation, the end, nada, over, done, (laughs) no more suffering. It's really possible. And the Buddha, you know, one of the wonderful um, quotes from the Buddha is when he said, if I did not think it was possible, I would not ask you to do it. I just so compassionate, you know. I just it just such a compassionate expression of his wish for us as human beings to wake up to our potential, wake up to our own nature, which is ultimately at peace, completely at peace, and it's this peacefulness when the mind finally comes to a place of rest that we find that happiness, that deep, deep contentment, the deep satisfaction, the deep fulfillment here in this human life. We don't have to go anywhere. Nothing really has to change. Life still goes on, but the struggle drops away. 
We're no longer in reaction. We're no longer in struggle and conflict with the way things are. So we find that sometimes that we are happy. Sometimes we feel this contentment, this satisfaction. And when we are happy, then we need to be happy. <laughs> I remember one time when one of uh, Manindraji, one of our teachers in the early days, would, would just talk about He'd say, when you're happy, just be happy. You know? Just be enjoy, Enjoy the happiness. And I remember when he would say that, it was, it was like, really? It's okay to be happy? But, <laughs> you know, this is happening and that's happening and this could happen and, you know, and what about that and, you know, and, and, and I've got this problem and, but actually, in this moment, I'm happy. But, but, <laughs> what about the next moment, you know? And it was always the sense, I, I, I really could sense how I just couldn't rest into the happiness that I was feeling when the mind wasn't in so much turmoil, when I was just more at peace and more rest. But there was that niggle, always that niggle, something's going to happen. Or there's some way that I can't just rest. I can't just rest. And it's interesting because there's a difference between kind of the fear this fear, this kind of constriction and this reaction that something's going to happen and this sense of doom or that, you know, if I, if I really let my guard down, something terrible is going to happen and then what, you know, then I'll be really thrown off guard. There's a difference between that kind of fear and what the Buddha talks about, which comes from more of a place of wisdom, where the Buddha actually talks about guarding the mind. Guarding the mind. But it's not from a place of, because you better watch out, you know, something's going to happen. But because at any time, the karmic momentum of our conditioned past can arise in the mind, any kind of mind state. Anger, aversion, desire, confusion, grasping, you know, and if we're not present, if we're not paying attention, we can so easily get pulled in to the force of those habits and then be lost again. We lose our ground, we lose our guard. So when the Buddha says, guard the mind, it's saying, because this is, we're not fully liberated yet. These, these forces are still moving through. They are running through the stream of consciousness. And so the more that we are paying attention, more that we're practicing mindfulness, we're practicing presence, then when some thought arises that has that kind of that little bit of hook, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, it could be anything. It could be during a walking meditation and it's you know, it's just not that stimulating. You know, you're just walking back and forth, and then the thought arises, be really nice to have a cup of tea. Just that thought. <laughs> it's so innocent and so benign. However, you have, you know, put yourself in a 
form of doing your walking meditation for a period of time. And then the thought arises, oh, but that cup of tea would be so nice to sit down and, you know, just stare out the window and sip my warm cup of tea and just kind of space out for a little while. You know, I've been working so hard and, you know, just need to kick back and relax. And, you know, we want to notice that thought. You know, where is that thought arising from? What's the motivation behind that thought? Maybe there is a point at which that boredom is just going to kick up something, something that hasn't been seen or known before, something unfamiliar, some, some kind of maybe the boredom is kind of covering over some kind of uh, irritation or anger about something that happened a few hours ago, and you really don't want to get into the anger. You just kind of want to push it away. So you just want to keep it down and don't want that to come up. So let's go get the cup of tea before anything happens here, you know. So we don't know, you know, we don't know. So, so we put ourselves in these forms, sitting for 45 minutes, walking for 45 minutes or less, to see what happens when we're not responding to these habits, these habitual tendencies, these thoughts, these desires, these uh, the pulls one way or towards something or away from something because that's running so strongly through the mind stream and we're usually not attentive enough to catch it and so we find ourselves who knows where I, at, at, the, at the meditation center in Barrie in Massachusetts on the east coast there are people who, who not only just go down and get a cup of tea, they get in their car and drive into town for a pizza. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's all kinds of stuff happens. <laughs> so you don't know that because <laughs> you're being good yogis. <laughs> but as a teacher, you know, I hear all kinds of stuff. It's unbelievable. I remember my, my first three-month retreat when I was, you know, really thought you, there was really a right way to do this, and everybody there was doing it right. And when I would hear about, you know, after the retreat, people driving into town or walking into town for pizzas, you know, it was quite shocking. You know? <laughs> I would never do anything like that. <laughs> But now that I'm, you know, some years later of after practice for a while, now I actually see that maybe it would be good for me to walk into town and get a pizza. It would actually shake up the very part of my identity that would not never do anything like that. You know, so you, so you just you don't you don't know where where is that arising from? That's what we really want to pay attention to. What's that? What's that? that movement of the mind that pulls us towards something or away from something where we want to reject our experience or we want to move towards a different experience, where is it arising from? Is it arising from fear? <coughs> Some kind of fear where we don't want to look at something, we're afraid, we're denying, we're pretending, we're suppressing, we're cutting off. We're, we just don't want to face some part of ourselves. Look at something that might be true. That I am an ag. I do get agitated. I do get angry. I really do hate people. You know, 
I mean, what else is new? You know, can we let that in? Can we let it in? Because it's the truth. And then see what happens when we really let it in and face the truth. Instead of this usual, which is the habit of the ego mind, to try to keep manipulating experience to match our idea of either who we want to be or how we want to be or how we want to appear in the world to others so that we will be loved or we be liked or so that we'll be seen a certain way or you know, get what we think we need. I mean, all kinds of strategies to make ourselves into someone to protect a certain kind of image or identity so we don't have to really face the truth, so we don't have to look deeply at ourselves. But yet when we come on a retreat or you have a commitment to a spiritual practice, you are already making a commitment to look at what's true. Otherwise, what else are we doing? What else would we be doing? We're sitting here looking at our own mind and our own experience, our body and all of that. Why would we be doing it? Certainly not to create more of a split so that then we get into some kind of wonderful experience and then not have to feel all the difficult experience. Then we'd just be reinforcing more splitting, more fragmentation, more disconnection. We're saying, I like this, I want these beautiful experiences, but I don't want these difficult experiences. And that's not the nature of this human life. The nature of this realm that we have been incarnated into is one where there is both beautiful experiences, but also very painful experiences. And I remember when I started to recognize that to really be open, if I was really going to start to open to the beautiful experiences, then that capacity to open meant that I was going to open to all experience, that I couldn't just open, <laughs> you know, this, this being, this real sense of openness couldn't just say, I'm only going to open to these experiences over here, but I'm going to be able to stay shut to those experiences over there. It doesn't work like that. When our mind and our heart and our being starts to open, it means we open to life, to all experience. Otherwise, we have to stay shut down. There's always a way we're a bit shut, shut down, closed off, and limited to what's really possible. And that was a kind of a rocky revelation. I, I didn't know how to navigate that. <laughs> it was like, but I want these really beautiful, kind of more transcendent experiences, but you mean I can't have those unless I also open to the really painful and difficult ones? Hmm. <laughs> How am I going to figure this out? <laughs> you know, and then recognizing that I was going to have to stay closed 
in order to stay close to the more painful experiences, but then it meant staying close to the beautiful experiences. And I found myself in a real quandary. I felt kind of stuck, really. Mostly in a place where I saw that I really didn't have a choice. How could I choose to stay closed? Because I didn't want to feel that which was difficult or painful. So as we walk this path, we start to get more into a pickle. (laughs) We realize that we've got ourselves into a situation that actually maybe we wish we hadn't gotten into. It's a little bit like the old adage that ignorance is bliss. You know, if the more the more wise we become, actually maybe it's not quite as blissful. We can't fool ourselves. We can't deceive ourselves in the same way. And yet we can't really go back. It's like we can't go back to the way we were because that doesn't make sense. But but to go forward means we start to open to all of reality and that can seem rather overwhelming or daunting to us. I mean, all of it? <laughs> you mean I need to open to all of it? <laughs> I remember one time where, when I, when I started having this revelation, it, it, I had the sense that I had taken some medicine that I wish I hadn't taken. It's sort of like, is there a way I can get that medicine out of my body? You know, but once you take medicine, you know, it goes into all the different parts of your cells and your muscles and your blood and all. It's like, oh, no. It's like the dharma's in me. <laughs> and you sort of want to get out. Like, I don't want this anymore. <laughs> but yet, we really, really don't have any choice. We're kind of caught, really caught. But clearly, there is a part of us that wants this as we keep going we keep going when I did my very 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 first retreat my um, uh, 24 let's see how many hours was it it's about a 48 hour retreat so from a Friday night to Sunday about 3 o'clock and many, many of you know who I've talked about this first re- weekend retreat that I did. But only about 25 people or so at a house somewhere in, back in the late 70s. I was, I was having, kind of having a nervous breakdown. You know, I just couldn't handle it. I couldn't, I couldn't take it. I couldn't take staying with myself. And the person who was leading the retreat was very helpful and sort of helped me through that. And so I felt a, a little bit better by Sunday afternoon. But, um, of course, I had the choice whether I was going to do one again, you know. Why would I go back? <laughs> it was really, really hard, and it was really painful, and I really got caught, really got stuck. But then part of me wanted to come back. There was a, a something in me that knew that there, this was right. There was something right about it. There was something that I had to look at. There was something I had to face in myself. And I obviously, you know, really took the bait and jumped in, really went for it. But it was very, very hard, 
very difficult path, very painful path. Not all the time. As we know, it changes. Sometimes it's quite difficult. Sometimes it's quite amazing. And it's almost like the extent, as, as we continue to practice, it's almost like the extent that it's painful is the same extent that it's amazing. And then it gets even more amazing and even more painful. It's almost like there's this kind of mirror image. But that's the opening. That's what happens as we open. Because in the opening, as we open and expand and grow, we we begin to have more capacity to meet the pain. Or it wouldn't grow. It wouldn't get bigger. We, there's only as much pain as we can meet. There seems to be some kind of natural order in that. That as our capacity grows, as we have more ground, as we have more uh, strength, more resources, there's, we have more capacity to meet life in its wholeness in its completeness. So it seems like more comes in. More comes into the space. And yet we can meet it. We can hold it. So what happens is we, we begin to have this shift in our relationship to conditions. Rather than this constant kind of rejection and manipulating and struggle and kind of controlling there's a capacity to be more open and work with the conditions, be with the conditions in a wiser way, in a healthier way, in a way where we're more present, we're more grounded, we're kinder, we're more compassionate. And this is what begins to develop. This is what begins to grow that these, these qualities of our being, these qualities of our heart, of our, of, the, of our mind, of our being, start to expand. And then with those qualities of strength and truthfulness and uh, generosity and love and compassion, um, um, uh, ethical sense of things, uh, all we start to meet our experience more and more with the, with the ability to hold what's happening with more wisdom, with more compassion. And this is the development on the path. We start to become more Buddha-like. <laughs> start to become more Buddha-like. And it may be that we forget that, we doubt that, we get confused or we get lost, and then something reminds us again. We come back. We say, oh, yeah, I wasn't that far away. It seemed like it in that forgetting or that time of difficulty, but then something comes back very easily, very quickly, and hold, we're held again in that wisdom and that compassion. So when we come on retreat, one of the first things that we are confronted with, and the Buddha uh, names these, these five difficult mind states, 
which are called the hindrances. And it's very good to have some context to understand these because this is what we meet. We meet these five difficult mind states, which are grasping or desire for what we want, the aversion or the rejection of what we don't want. Those are the two primary movements of the mind, the, 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 the leaning into or the desire for what we want and the kind of um, constriction and contraction that can happen in that desire. Or the opposite, the pushing away, which takes a certain kind of, again, contraction, a forcefulness of, I don't want that, I don't like it, pushing it away. Those, those are the first two. And then two that are energetic, which where we find ourselves falling into a lot of sleepiness and tiredness. So many people spoke about that. And then the opposite of that energy, which is the restlessness and the worry, where the body is agitated or the mind is in, is, is in worry, restlessness. This is another key uh, state that we find ourselves in. And then the four, fifth one of the five is doubt. This kind of uh, self-doubt or negative doubt, where we're crit- critical doubt of ourselves. And then that doubt can get projected onto the teachers and the teachings and the practices and everything, you know, just can kind of go out. And these five are very predominant. And so when we come on retreat, that's what we meet. We meet these five states. So the first practice, kind of the first practice here on retreat then, is to look at our relationship these states. What happens when I notice how this desire is operating in my mind? What happens when when I get very resistant and aversive and rejecting? What's that like? And when I get sleepy and I don't want that and I have all kinds of expectations and, you know, what I want to have happen here and all this aversion then is laid on top of the sleepiness. Or the restlessness, you know, how painful or difficult or complex that is, how you can't stop it. Or the doubt, just how undermining the doubt can be, how it can just stop our practice. We can't move because we kind of freeze in that doubt about who I am and what I can do and what's possible and this isn't really for me and why am I doing this anyhow and you know, all that kind of doubt that can come in. What happens for us? So this our question as we approach in a, pra- a practice way is what's my relationship to these conditions arising? Because the first thing that will happen is that we start to identify with them and believe them as if there's some kind of problem. The first thing we do, we think, well, it's a problem that I'm grasping. It's a problem that I'm in resistance. It's a problem that I'm sleepy. It's a problem that I'm restless. It's a problem that I'm feeling doubt. What if we take out that first problem? (laughs) Say, it's not a problem. It's only how you're looking at it. Maybe if you look at it a little differently... All of a sudden, 
by just changing your relationship, changing your attitude about those conditions arising, you've already removed a huge part of the problem, which is this shouldn't be happening. <laughs> Something else should be happening, which then is the activity of the ego mind. The ego that always has preferences and is attached to its preferences, not only attached, identified and believes that that's the only way I'm going to be happy. The only way I'm going to know any kind of contentment is for this to go away. And so I have to find a way to get rid of it. And just talking now about these mind states, but we can see how we can do that with all kinds of things in our life, whether it's a health condition, whether it's a person and a personal relationship, whether it's something in our work, whether it's um, uh, all, all something that we own that, that has fallen apart, that we're angry that it's fallen apart, anything. This should not be like this. The ego mind asserts itself, asserts that, that idea, the ideation on top of reality. We say on top of reality because reality is just reality. It's just doing what it does. Sights and sounds and smells and tastes and thoughts and images and just... Actually, that's all that's ever happening are those six experiences. I, I like to remind people there, there are six experience that, experiences that make up the totality of all reality, which is seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, feeling through the body, and then the thoughts about that, the thinking about that or the images that we have about that. That's all that's ever happening. There is nothing else happening. And so it's how the mind then creates all of this, this big, big saga, big story, as if there actually is more happening. And so in our practice, we want to see if we can, again, come back to the as bare experience as possible right here and now before the mind comes in and starts to blow up a huge story about what's actually occurring. What's happening right now? What is the sensation? What is the feeling? What is the thought? What is the mind state? What is the mood? What is happening in the senses through the feelings, the smells, the taste, the sounds? What is happening? Can we, through our awareness and through our investigation, which can only happen once we come to the place of taking out that first problem, that this shouldn't be happening, once we actually say, okay, maybe this should be happening, <laughs> because it's happening. <laughs> you know, when we're not arguing with reality and we just say, Reality is the highest order. If it's happening, it must have a reason to be happening. How can it not have a reason to be happening? Because it's happening. <laughs> That's where the argument comes in, right? This, but it, even though it is happening, it shouldn't be happening. <laughs> you know? It's very funny when you start to really see what's going on here. But when we can first come and say, okay, 
I do have grasping in the mind, I am tired, I am feeling resistant, then we can start to have the opportunity to begin to investigate our experience at a more subtle level. We say, what am I feeling in this body, in my sensations? What kinds of thoughts are arising? What's the impingement of the sound or the, the sight, the light's too bright or the sound's too strong or my body pain is too strong or the boredom is too much or, you know, what is it? What's impinging? What, what is giving rise to the sense of a problem? What's making it into a problem? I came across this little story from Ajahn Chah, who was one of the great elders in our tradition, the Thai, Thai forest tradition in Thailand. And it's this story um, where Ajahn Chah was meditating at night in the forest in Thailand, while the sounds of, the, of a raucous activity from the nearby villages was filling the air. It was very, very common there. And this was happening to Ajahn Chah when he was practicing. And he, in early earlier time, and he was becoming very, very irritated by the noise. Now here he's meditating in, in night, in, in the forest. There's all this noise coming in, you know. So he says, why do they waste their time doing unskillful things and make disturbance for everybody else into the bargain, Right. Don't they know there's a monk out here in the woods trying to meditate <laughs> and practice the Buddha's path? I go into the village every day for alms. They know I'm here. They should know better than to be so insensitive. They're making a lot of bad karma, etc., etc. Right? You know the, you know the, the the play, right? We all do that. So then, suddenly, amidst the flow of righteous indignation. He realized, ah, but the sound is just sound. It's only doing its duty as sound. It has no intention to annoy me. Why should I go out and annoy it? If I leave it alone, what harm can it do me? Upon this realization, his mind became very peaceful, even though the sounds of the village festival were still there. Even though the sounds of the village festival were still there, nothing changed except his mind. The conditions exactly the same. The conditions of his body, the conditions of the mind, whatever this, his irritable state, that was, you know, the conditions of the external environment, but then something happens where there's that recognition of the bare reality of that, that, that baseline which just sound. In this case, it was unpleasant sound. Be curious to know whether it was still unpleasant. It might have changed. That happens too. That happened to me when I was really irritated about a sound of the, the, the digger the digger next to where I was meditating at, at, for a long retreat. And then when I finally got over my aversion, the sound changed to Tibetan bells. It wasn't unpleasant anymore. It became extremely pleasant. 
once the aversion and the resistance and the agitation left my mind, it was like, <laughs> you know, the rainbow's coming out in the sky. Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen once, the, once we change our relationship? It's not a problem anymore. It's not a problem. There's a story of a, this is from the Buddha, the Buddha's teachings, the story of a wanderer named Bahia. And he was wandering and he saw the Buddha and he stopped the Buddha on the street in uh, Savati and said, Venerable Sir, your Dharma is famous throughout the land. Please teach me that I may understand the truth. And the Buddha replied, We are on our alms round, Bahia. This is not the right time. And Bahia said, Oh, but venerable sir, your dharma is famous throughout the land. Please teach me. And the Buddha replied, But we are on alms round, Bahia. This is not the right time. And he said, But life is uncertain. You know, you, you must teach me now. And of course, when you ask the Buddha three times, then the Buddha responds. And this is what the Buddha said. He only had a minute, you know. So he... <laughs> So this was what he said in that state of urgency. He said, in the scene, there is only the scene. In the heard, hearing, there is only that which is heard. In the sense, sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. Thus, you should see that indeed, there is no thing here. This Bahia is how you should train yourself. There's no thing here. Just a sound. It arises, it passes. There's just a sight. It arises, it passes. There's just a, a taste. There's a smell. There's a touch, a sensation. It comes, it goes. Where is the thing that we are making such a problem out of? When we stay in a very connected and present and aware way with our experience. Right here, right now. Before the mind picks it up and makes it into something so much bigger. And yes, of course, there may be for, for certain things that we are confronted with or we're experiencing, there are so-called problems. We call problems in our lives with, with health issues and uh, relationships and jobs and money and the economy and the wars and the violence and the suffering and all of that. And yes, we are impacted by that and we will feel that. But our, but our lifeline... This, this, what this practice gives us is this capacity to just come back here just for some moments come back here and see right here where you are sitting where is the problem right now in this moment just this having this momentary relief where we can feel and sense that you know, right as I connect with my experience, I'm actually okay. I'm actually okay. 
it's not as bad as my mind makes it up to be in my more difficult moments, in times when maybe I don't have as many resources to connect in this way with this perspective. But in this moment, I know I'm okay and that things are going to be okay. And that whole sense of okayness changes. That It's not like everybody's now going to be living with happiness and health and abundance and freedom. And It's a different kind of okay. It's a kind of trust in the way things are unfolding, in the natural order of things. And that the direct experience is one that things are okay. If I consult my experience without consulting my mind and the stories that my mind is going to make up about it, if I'm able to just consult my direct experience, my sensations, my body, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the tastes, even the, just seeing the thoughts are coming and going, that the thoughts really aren't taking hold if I have that level of awareness. There's nothing impinging. There's nothing impinging. Even pain, even the quality of pain starts to change. There's even even the possibility of seeing that pain itself is not so static. It's not so solid. But that, too, changes from pleasant to unpleasant and sometimes in between. So this way that our life and our world and our sense of self, which feels so solid and and so permanent, so fixed, unmovable, unshakable, starts to have a whole different quality. One that is not quite as solid, has more movement, more energy, more maybe even dynamism. We start to feel and sense that more dynamic quality of existence itself that is constantly in motion, constantly in some kind of creation and disappearing, creation and disappearing, arising, passing, appearing and ceasing. It's amazing, magical, mysterious, realm, not only that we live in, but that we are. (laughs) We are that. We are not separate from that. It's not like that nature is out there and then there's a static, solid, (laughs) fixed entity here that's relating to all of this amazing creation out there. I am that creation. I am made of the same stuff. I am made of the same nature. There is no that out there and this in here. It's all this expression of nature itself. This dynamic aliveness expressing itself in myriad ways and diverse ways. So much diversity that they're all of you, (laughs) each one of you different, each one of you unique, 
Each one of your experiences completely different than the next. How amazing creation is. That's what we are. So as we start to sense into our experience, more and more, once we, we can get out of the way of this kind of this the, the, this ego activity or this ego mind of this way we control and, and want things to be a certain way, this desiring and this grasping and this expectation and all of this, this is what makes up the ego ego. This is called ego activity. Ego activity. And when we feel a sense of more peace, that ego activity has quieted down. And when that activity quiets down, that's what allows us to feel the connection with the greater reality. There's more clarity. There's more accessibility. There's more knowing of what's actually true. We start to feel that, and many people have spoken about that. That sense of separation starts to fade away, dissolve away. I don't feel so separate. I don't feel so isolated or different. But that I feel more part of the flow, part of the whole, part of the vastness. So when we recognize that, when we know that, we want to see if we can actually really drink that in. It's there, these are very potent moments, very, very impressive moments. And we want to see if we can then guard our mind against the, but what if, <laughs> or but this could, you know, that where the ego mind wants to just come up in the, in the place of fear, but we can't really rest. You can't really relax. You can't really put your guard down. But what if just maybe trying to see what happens if you just rest into that for a little bit. Just relax. Rest. See what happens. Trust. Trust into that knowing that that the power of that moment when so much is being revealed to us. Just see. And keep our keep our eye on that wisdom eye on that 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 one who's so frightened who thinks it's not not okay to rest or to relax. So So I'll end with um, this poem by Dana Falls. Settle, settle in the here and now. Reach down into the center where the world is not spinning and drink this holy peace. 
feel relief flood into every cell. Nothing to do, nothing to be but what you are already. Nothing to receive but what flows effortlessly from the mystery into form. Nothing to run from or run towards. Just this breathing, awareness knowing itself as embodiment. Just this breathing, awareness waking up to the truth. Nothing to receive but what flows effortly, effortlessly from the mystery into form. Let's sit quietly for a moment. <laughs> 